I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about recent oral arguments and some new grants, a new study measuring the scaliness of appellate judges, and we'll interview the co-head of Goodwin Proctor's appellate practice, Willie Jay. So what is happening at SCOTUS this week? Well, there still haven't been any new opinions. And what are they doing? Yeah, not sure. Uh, but the court was in session this week and heard four oral arguments. After this week, the justices won't be back until late February for the next set of arguments. I wouldn't call any of the cases this week blockbusters, but <laughs> here they are. First up was Hall versus Hall. This is the case of Ethelyn, Elsa, and Samuel Hall. It's a family, a messy family dispute over money and vacation property in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and it led to dueling lawsuits in two federal district courts. So the two issues before the court in this case are the effect of consolidating separate civil actions and whether they become a single action and how that affects the timing of an obligation to appeal. So the oral argument was a deep dive into the federal rules of civil procedure. Fascinating. Yeah. But there was at least one moment of levity. Uh, There's a Twitter account called SCOTUS Humor that looks for laugh lines in uh, transcripts of Supreme Court arguments. And they found one in this case. Scotus Humor points out that Chief Justice John Roberts got the only laugh of the argument by bringing up an amicus brief that was filed by seven retired federal judges. Roberts said, do we imply the other 280 don't agree with it? I don't know quite what to do with this brief. I love that they're. this is what retired judges do, <laughs> like submit amicus briefs in their free time. Shouldn't they be like relaxing on a beach somewhere? Yeah, this is like I've decided in my retirement, I'm just going to like file a bunch of comments at agencies. <laughs> just going like to comment on everything. I feel like this is like the equivalent of that, but live in the, know, a little live higher level. Um, next up was Demalzi versus United States. So in this case, several members of the armed forces challenged whether judges who serve simultaneously on the U.S. Court of Military Commission Review, which hears cases um, or hears, hears appeals from military commissions, um, and also serve on the military courts of criminal appeal, um, which review cases of certain convictions by courts martial, um, whether serving on both courts at the same time violates um, the dual office holding ban. So this is basically a, a prohibition on an active duty officer um, in the military from holding another job that needs Senate confirmation. Um, the most exciting part of the argument by far was when Justice Kennedy asked one of the lawyers, law professor uh, Steve Vladek, if Marbury versus Madison was correctly decided. <laughs> uh, yes, it's not a question that you get every day at the court. And it also got a laugh. And um, Vladek gave sort of a cagey law professor answer. Of course he um, did. <laughs> yeah. So he said, so I will confess, Justice Kennedy, that I may... I may perhaps be belong in the school of scholars who think that Chief Justice Marshall read both the statute and the Constitution to reach the constitutional questions he wanted to reach. I'm not sure that he nevertheless didn't end up with the wrong answer. Um, but then he said it didn't really matter for purposes of this case because another case controlled. Um, I actually think that was a pretty good answer. I mean, everyone thinks uh, there are some issues with Marbury, including how Chief Justice Marshall selectively quoted the statute. Um, but no one's going to go to the Supreme Court and argue <laughs> that Marbury was wrongly decided and needs to be overturned. <laughs> so I think it was a pretty good answer. Yeah, that would uh, definitely take quite a quite an individual to make that argument. 
So next up was Encino Motorcars versus Navarro. If you're getting deja vu, that's because this is the second time the court has heard this case. So the issue is whether the overtime pay requirements of the Fair Labor Standards Act applies to service advisors at car dealerships. So last term, the court heard the case and then ended up vacating and remanding back to the Ninth Circuit on the grounds that the court below uh, must look at the overtime provision without giving controlling weight to the Department of Labor's interpretation because during the Obama administration, the department had changed the very longstanding interpretation of this provision uh, without providing a so-called reasoned explanation. So last time around, the case was argued by Paul Clement, friend of the podcast, and Stephanos Bibas, formerly a professor at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. But now... Uh, Bebus is Judge Bebus on the Third Circuit, and so his former colleague at, at the law school, James Feldman, took over the case and faced off with Paul Clement this week. I, I have no idea what James Feldman looks like, but um, I'm sure the argument was lacking a really great beard. Uh, <laughs> Stephanos Bebus has, like, the greatest beard ever. You should Google him and look yeah, it no, up. Yeah, nobody has a beard like uh, like Judge Bebus's beard. <laughs> and then finally, the court heard uh, McCoy against Louisiana. So this is quite a case. The issue is whether it's unconstitutional for a defense counsel to concede um, an accused guilt over that person's express objection. So in in 2008, Robert McCoy murdered his estranged wife's parents and her son. And at his trial, his defense attorney admitted his guilt in his opening statement, even though McCoy expressly told him not to. So I wrote down some quotes from the um, from the record. So he told the jury that um, his client is, quote, committed three murders. And he told them that he, quote, took the burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt, off of the prosecutor. And then he finally said, I've just told you he's guilty, (laughs) Um, which are pretty incredible statements at a trial. But anyway, Louisiana argues that, on the other hand, most of the time, counsel cannot concede guilt over his client's objection. But in this case, which is rare, conceding guilt was a part of the litigation strategy and that the lawyer was trying to spare the defendant's life. So they say the lawyer here believed that there was overwhelming evidence that McCoy did it, um, so he wanted to concede that and focus on other factors that would help him um, help him avoid getting the death penalty. Um, I have a hard time thinking the court here is going to be sympathetic to the state's position, though. Um, so the real question is how they're how the state's going to lose, <laughs> uh, whether the court will decide the case uh, pretty narrowly under existing case law um, or whether they will end up essentially creating a new constitutional right in this area. Which is just what we need, more, more <laughs> yeah. constitutional rights. Um, so I think it'll be an interesting case for for that reason. Um, The court also issued 12 new grants, and so we'll briefly run through um, a few of those that piqued our interest. Um, First, they granted a couple uh, redistricting cases out of Texas on direct appeal. Um, These are very complex issues that I don't fully understand. Um, We need to study the briefs and we'll get back to you. I'm not going to talk about them yet. Um, But the interesting thing is there these aren't the only redistricting cases on the docket um, this term. The court already has a couple more, um, so it's a big, big term for redistricting. Definitely. So another interesting case the court is going to hear is Animal Science Products versus Hibai, well, a welcome company. I think so. Hibai. I don't. Sure. I don't know how to say that. This uh, this uh, involves the Foreign Sovereign Compulsion Doctrine. Uh, so. 
the the question is whether and to what extent U.S. courts should defer to a foreign government's characterization of its own law. So this was a price-fixing case under the Sherman Act, uh, the antitrust law. Uh, Chinese companies that manufacture and export uh, export vitamin C to the United States admit to violating the law, but they argue as a defense that Chinese law required them to form a cartel and engage in price-fixing and limitations on supply. So the Chinese government actually filed an amicus brief in the lower court explaining its law, and the Second Circuit held that it was bound to defer to the interpretation as a matter of international comedy. Interesting. Not- I'll note in... It's funny just looking at cases where other governments file um, file amicus brief. So in McCoy, it, England filed an amicus brief, <laughs> um, which was just – it was kind of funny. Thank you, England, for your uh, your input on this case. Yeah. Uh, so next up is uh, Lucia versus SEC, or maybe it's Lucia versus SEC. This is whether administrative law judges of the SEC are officers of the United States within the meaning of the Appointments Clause or whether they are just employees. So there are plenty of quasi-judicial officers like special trial judges for trial tax courts, magistrate judges, clerks, commissioners, who are all considered officers. So in this case, both sides of, of, the, uh, of the dispute agree now uh, that that the administrative law judges are officers. The federal government urged the Supreme Court to take this case. Um, and uh, agrees that the the SEC ALJs, as, as they're known, are officers. This is a departure from the Obama administration's position, and and they the government had asked the court to resolve the circuit split on this issue. So I would point out an interesting amicus brief that was filed at the cert stage uh, by Mark Cuban, who's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he's one of the investors on the TV show Shark Tank. So his brief states, Mark Cuban is a successful businessman and investor. He defeated an attempt by the SEC to sanction him as an inside trader based on a defective legal theory and incorrect facts. As a first-hand witness to and victim of SEC overreach, Mr. Cuban has an interest in supporting petitioner's appeal in this case. (laughs) I haven't read the brief, but it just sounds kind of vindictive. Like, (laughs) I'm just going to file in every case against the SEC. Yeah, so we'll uh, we'll keep an eye on that one. Yeah, and I think that's going to be one of the more interesting cases this term. Definitely. Um, And another really interesting case that the court just granted is South Dakota um, against Wayfair. It's an internet sales tax case. Um, So South Dakota passed a law in 2016 requiring out-of-state retailers to collect sales taxes if they reach a certain threshold. So if they make more than 200 sales or their sales add up to $100,000. So some retailers didn't comply and then the state sued them. The South uh, Dakota state courts found for the the retailers, based on a Supreme Court decision um, that said unless catalog retailers were physically present in a state, the state couldn't require them to collect sales tax. Um, But a couple of years ago, Justice Kennedy showed some willingness to reconsider whether that decision was right, um, and now the court has decided to do so. So Wayfair, I love that website. So uh, we'll see what happens there. Yeah, this case could have some big implications for um, big companies like that and Amazon. Yeah, definitely. So there's this Scalianus study that you've been just really dying to talk about uh, that just came out. But I want to point out that there was an older Scalianus study uh, that came out sometime in 2017, I think. Uh, and it included 
uh, Supreme Court shortlister Thomas Lee, who is a justice on the Utah Supreme Court and brother of Senator Mike Lee. And in that's in in the old study, he ranked first of 15 judges who were measured for their scullyness. So, Tiffany, I hope you're going to tell us how Justice Lee fared this time around. Yes, I will. But first, I'm going to tell you about the um, what the updates really meant. So, this new updated Scalianus paper is called Searching for Scalia in 2018, <laughs> Measuring the Scalianus of President Trump's Supreme Court Shortlist. Um, so, this is the updated version that includes a few more judges, including... Brett Kavanaugh and Amul Thapar. Um, And they also changed up some of the variables. So they looked at six different variables. Um, They looked at the percentage of each judge's opinions that promote originalism, how often the judges cited Justice Scalia, um, how often they wrote separately, which Scalia was big into doing. (laughs) Um, It analyzed their writing variables and their writing style, Um, the number of years they served as a law professor, um, I think Scalia was a professor for nine years, I think. Sounds right um, to me. And then they looked at the percentage of the judge's life that they've lived outside Washington, D.C. Um, so, as you know, Justice Scalia didn't live most of his life here. Um, once again, Justice Lee of Utah was ranked as the most Scalia-like. Um, and he was followed uh, by Bill Pryor from the 11th Circuit, Neil Gorsuch, now in the Supreme Court, uh, newly um, a new judge, Don Willett, on the Fifth Circuit, Tom Hardiman on the Third Circuit, and runner-up for the SCOTUS seat, and then finally number six was Brett Kavanaugh on the D.C. Circuit. So for the new appeals court judges, for Judge Thapar and then Judge Willett, is it based on like how? What is it based on? Does it include well, they, their their old opinions? Yeah. So they've um, they have a they have all these charts, and some of them are hard to <laughs> incorporate. But they do look at at their writing from um, different judicial opinions in their career. So when Don Willett was on the Texas Supreme Court, and then um, when Amul Thapar was on on the District Court, like they did this um, in the study when they. Um, when they analyzed Diane Sykes, too. They did her as a federal judge and then as a state judge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I, I, if I remember, Justice Roberts was the least Scalia-like, and Amulthapar was kind of um, at the at the bottom of this, too. I think it's interesting, though, in, um, in you know, kind of guessing if there's a new Supreme Court nomination, um, you know, how these how these judges fair at being textualist or originalist. So it might just be some interesting, you know, things for the people who make those decisions to to take a look at. <laughs> well, it sounds like an interesting study, and we'll definitely um, tweet it out from our, our Twitter account at SCOTUS101. You should follow us if you, if you aren't. We have a lot of great memes. Um, so anyway, moving on, uh, we recently had the pleasure of speaking with Willie J., We're pleased to have Willie J with us today. He's a partner at Goodwin and a former assistant to the Solicitor General. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Willie. Thanks for having me. So you've argued 15 cases at the Supreme Court. Uh, Which were the most memorable? Well, I'll give you a couple. Uh, The most memorable by far was the one that I argued two days after my daughter was born. (laughs) Oh, my. Uh, She uh, arrived very early on a Saturday, and the argument was Monday afternoon, and the... uh, 
the deputy solicitor general, Michael Dreben, uh, had asked me, you know, a couple of weeks before, kind of, what, what's the plan in case <laughs> in case this happens? And this is one of the most humbling moments of, of a career uh, where we discussed it. And I said, you know, uh, uh, that obviously if uh, the baby came very close to the argument, I would go to the hospital. Uh, and he said, well... I think with five or six hours notice, I could probably just do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. So did you sleep that entire weekend? <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit here and there, uh, but my wife and daughter were being very well cared for. Uh, we had a 20-month-old at the time as well, uh, but I had lots of help from my in-laws and others, and uh, I had basically finished doing the prep on the Friday. So I basically put my argument notes together, went off, did the argument, and began my paternity leave at 2 p.m. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so by my count, you've worked for four solicitor general, solicitors general, Paul Clement, Greg Garr, Elena Kagan, and Don Verrilli. Tell us a little bit about your experience working for all of them. Well, they were all uh, great bosses in their individual ways, and they had different styles. Uh, I think one of the most interesting contrasts was between not the Republicans and the Democrats, but between the people who came to the position from private practice and General Kagan, who came from academia. Uh, and General Kagan uh, was a ferocious and terrific editor of our briefs, especially. Um, she wanted the drafts several days before they were due so that she could put her own stamp on them. And, you know, my own drafts, I know, benefited tremendously from her editing and questioning and rethinking. Uh, some of the others, including both Republicans and Democrats who'd come from private practice, uh, took a uh, more hands-off approach to line editing uh, because they spent a lot of time on the referee function of the Solicitor General, uh, deciding which of the different components within the government was going to have its view prevail and be the position of the United States. And I think partly because of what was teed up for those Solicitors General and partly because of how they chose to run the office, uh, they spent less time line editing briefs in the uh, in the few days before they were due. So what's it like appearing before your former boss, who is now a member of the Supreme Court? Uh, well, Justice Kagan is a terrific and incisive questioner of everybody, and I certainly haven't <laughs> noticed that she's cut me any slack on uh, uh, cases that I've argued. Uh, but I always benefit from the questions that she asks because I think she has a very good instinct to go to questions in the case that really matter. Uh, and I, I, I know that I benefited from having interacted with her within the SG's office because she asked the same kind of questions <laughs> uh, in meetings where we were uh, discussing with her what the position of the United States should be or what uh, the brief should say. Um, so changing gears a little bit, it seems like there's been an increase in patent cases at the court. So why do you think this is and how did you get into the patent docket? Uh, I think one reason for it uh, is different personnel on the court. And another reason is just that patent cases tend to have a lot of money at stake uh, and sophisticated counsel on both sides of the V, whereas uh, criminal cases or uh, private civil cases you know, that involve you know, an individual plaintiff or a class of plaintiffs against a business defendant uh, might not have the same uh, experienced Supreme Court counsel on both sides of the V already. So I think that has produced more uh, petitions that seem to meet the Supreme Court's criteria. And another related point is that, that in the patent arena, 
all of the cases go through the federal circuit. And there's no way to look for a split with other circuits unless it's on an issue of procedure uh, that does implicate what other circuits do. So in my first patent case, we actually did petition the Supreme Court invoking something that applies to all the courts of appeals and said the federal circuit is out of step with all the other courts of appeals. You know, you should apply the same rule to this uh, to the federal circuit as you do to all the other courts of appeals. Uh, that case was soon after I came to Goodwin. It was a major patent case that the firm had been handling since the case went to trial. And the adverse federal circuit decision came down relatively soon after I came to the firm. And so it was natural that the client was going to go to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I was lucky to be a part of that team. So do you have any pre-argument rituals? We've read about some advocates who eat four bananas before their arguments. So. Do you have any superstitions or rituals? I don't have any uh, food rituals. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, the contrast between government service and private practice is interesting in one respect, that when I was in the government, I would wake up early and you know walk to the metro and take the metro in before the argument, same as every day. And you know, now sometimes a client will spring for a hotel because they don't want to take the risk that their lawyer's uh, metro train is going to break down. <laughs> uh, but no, my ritual tends to be on the day before – I am doing the sort of arts and crafts of putting together my binder and tabbing things and figuring out what goes on the one piece of paper that's sort of stuck in the front of my binder, which really is, in most cases, the only thing from the binder that I look at at the mm -hmm. lectern. And sometimes I don't even get to look down at that. <laughs> so you clerked for Judge O'Scanlan on the Ninth Circuit. What was it like working for a conservative judge on the famously liberal Ninth Circuit? It, it, it is a famously liberal court, and Judge O'Scanlan is certainly not shy about uh, calling cases en banc, even when it doesn't look like a majority of that circuit is going to take the case en banc, and his dissents from denial of rehearing have been, I think, very influential in certainly. helping the Supreme Court identify problematic but important cases that the Ninth Circuit decides. Uh, but one of the things that I found uh, most interesting and most rewarding you know, was that there were a number of judges on that court who were open to persuasion in the right cases that uh, you know, a panel had done something wrong and that the issue should be reconsidered, uh, kind of irrespective of ideological valence. And I, one of the uh, best experiences that I had with working with Judge O'Scanlan was on a case that uh, he had asked me to help him with. Uh, he had called for en banc, uh, and the panel basically backed down and said, you know, you've identified a problem with, you know, part three of our opinion. Um, we think you have some good points, and we've deleted that part of the opinion, and, you know, we, we trust this resolves the matter, and it did. So what's your favorite memory, memory of clerking for him? Uh, of clerking for Judge O'Scanlan? Uh, he was a terrific boss, and I had a lot of fun both with him and with uh, uh, with my co-clerks. So they were sort of both professional um, professional rewards, like the experience uh, that I just mentioned, uh, and just sort of the uh, the personal experience of helping to draft uh, decisions that wound up in the Federal Reporter. And I, I came into that clerkship knowing very little about some of the issues that are very important on the Ninth Circuit, ranging from habeas to copyright. And it was a chance to delve deeply into each of them because you're writing not – the way the Ninth Circuit operates, uh, many of the judges share bench memos uh, before the panel meets for argument and then for conference. So you're writing not just for your own boss but for the other members of the panel and to try and uh, do a good job 
representing the judges' chambers uh, to and having the other judges be happy with the quality of your research. No matter what you recommended as to the bottom line, that's the judge's job to decide. But they all wanted the bench memos to be thorough and to go through the pros and cons of everything uh, and to get compliments from not just your own judge, but from other judges who might not agree with with <laughs> your judge uh, was really rewarding. So you also clerked for Justice Scalia on the Supreme Court. Can you tell us something about the justice that our listeners may not know? <laughs> well, uh, the first thing I think of is uh, of an evening when I was, uh, you know, handing in a memo or something like it in the outer office where the justice's secretary sat and I was, uh, and the door to the justice's inner office was open. I, I thought he was gone for the day, uh, but I uh, uh, at one point heard from the inner office, fly me to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> and out comes the justice in tuxedo and uh, looks at me and says, originalist jurist by day, man about town by night. <laughs> and out the door he went. Oh, that's great. Uh, so he had a, a terrific singing voice and he really enjoyed singing. Um, and he also, um, when he went on the court, uh, was one of the, I think, very few justices might at that time have been the only justice who had actually argued before the court himself. And you could see from his own experience, uh, sorry, from the way he handled himself on the bench, that he found oral argument a really important uh, part of the case because mm-hmm. it allowed him to drill down to what he found to be essential, which sometimes wasn't thoroughly dealt with in the briefs. Uh, and so he asked a lot of questions, which I think was quite a change for the court at the beginning of his tenure. But you've seen, I think, over the last several years, m- most, maybe even all of the justices of the new justices have been more active questioners than the justices they replaced, except maybe for Justice Gorsuch, who had obviously big a big microphone to uh, fill. <laughs> Though he's doing a pretty good job. He does ask uh, a lot of questions questions, and excellent questions. But uh, Justice Scalia, I think, was not going to be easily outdone. (laughs) Certainly. Um, So one final question. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I have have a family reason for answering that this way. uh, I would uh, probably want to talk to my ancestor, the first Chief Justice, John Jay. Uh, who I think, other than having been first, uh, is not made nearly as big a mark uh, on the court in terms of his jurisprudence, other than his opinion in Chisholm versus Georgia, uh, which is sometimes you know studied now. Uh, uh, partly because the court in those days handed down opinions seriatim. You know, each justice would hand down his own opinion. Uh, but I, I, I would be especially interested in why he chose to leave the court, which he he was clearly eager to do to become governor of New York. Uh, and not to come back. Uh, and he remained alive for a long time after he'd retired from public life and he devoted himself to farming and uh, you know quiet contemplation and to uh, uh, and to his private devotion to God. And he uh, was nonetheless around for much of John Marshall's tenure as Chief Justice. and I would be fascinated to know what he made of it. Yeah, certainly sounds interesting. Well, Willie, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. We'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Sweet Mystery of Life edition, where I'm going to try to stump <laughs> Tiffany. Oh, no. So I'm not ready. <laughs> in honor of the March for Life, which is on Friday of this week, January 19th, this week's trivia is all focused on the, the Supreme Court's abortion cases. Okay. Are you ready? I guess so. Okay. First question. What state lost 9-0 to zero when the Supreme Court reviewed its law 
making it a crime to stand on a public road or sidewalk within 35 feet of an abortion clinic. This basically created a no pro-life speech buffer zone. Yeah. I actually, I think I went to the court to hear this case. It was a few years ago. Mark Rienzi argued it. That is I correct. Think it's Massachusetts. That is correct. Yes. It's Massachusetts in McCullen versus Coakley in yes. 2014. That's it. Well done. Thanks. Next question. Which current Supreme Court justice called the decision in Roe v. Wade, quote, a heavy-handed judicial intervention that was difficult to justify? Difficult to justify. Like, in an opinion? You're going to tell me if it's in an opinion or in a speech? You're not going to tell me? It wasn't in an opinion. Oh, okay. I... It's got to be either Thomas or Gorsuch. I'm going to go with Gorsuch. That's not correct. Dang it. It's Ruth Bader Ginsburg. What? Yeah. Really? She said that? She wrote a 1985 law review article called Some Thoughts on Autonomy and Equality in Relation to Roe v. Wade. Interesting. Yeah. I would not have thought that. (laughs) That's why I picked it. (laughs) Next question. What opinion contains the original Sweet Mystery of Life passage, and who is the author? Um, I think it's Planned Parenthood versus Casey. That's correct. Justice Kennedy authored it. I'll give you partial credit for that. Partial credit. Well, it was a a trio of justices who were listed as the authors of the majority, or I guess the plurality opinion in Casey. It was technically attributed to Justice O'Connor, Justice Kennedy, and Justice Souter. But everyone knows Kennedy did it. Yes, although as he went on (laughs) to use it in many subsequent cases, I think we know who came up with the sweet mystery of life. Okay, okay. Next question. Yes. Who called Roe v. Wade, quote, the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law? (laughs) I definitely know this one. Uh, (laughs) Judge Pryor. That is awesome. That is correct. He was asked about this statement during his confirmation hearing uh, to the 11th Circuit, and he refused to backpedal, instead saying, not only is the case unsupported by the text and structure of the Constitution, but it led to a morally wrong result, the slaughter of millions of innocent unborn children. He's just awesome. I know. He is pretty awesome. Okay, final question. There's another one? Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) Justice Thomas wrote a dissenting opinion in this case— chastising the majority for making the court, quote, the country's ex officio medical board with powers to disapprove medical procedures and standards throughout the United States. Hmm. This language sounds, is it from, I think it's from a recent case from a couple terms ago, Heller, Heller, Hellerstedt? That's correct. It's Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt, which reviewed the, the Texas uh, admitting privileges law. Well, I think you did pretty good, Tiffany. That was awesome. Yeah, I think you did pretty darn good. <laughs> so uh, so good job. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. 